Today is Wednesday, May 5th, 2021. On this day in 1905, Scotland Yard brought Alfred and Albert Stratton to trial. It was the first time fingerprinting forensics were used in a murder case in the UK. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm joined by our guest host, Carter Roy of Hollywood Scandals. He's here to discuss some of the historical aspects of today's story while I'll cover the narrative. Hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to be digging into the history and practices of fingerprinting forensics. Let's go back to South London on May 5th, 1905. Alfred Stratton sat with his brother Albert in court, confident they were getting away with murder. After midnight on March 27, 1905, Alfred and Albert had tricked 71-year-old Thomas Farrow into letting them into the first floor of his paint shop. Thomas managed the store along with his wife, Anne, and they both lived in the upstairs rooms. The Stratton brothers beat Thomas senseless before heading upstairs. They attacked Anne while she was still in bed, putting her into a coma. They ransacked the room until they got what they came for, the store's tin cash box containing 13 pounds, roughly 2,200 U.S. dollars today. Downstairs, Thomas was still alive and tried to stop the Stratton brothers as they were leaving. They scuffled, destroying furniture and store shelves until the brothers overpowered Thomas, leaving him in a pool of blood with his brains exposed. When the Strattons exited the storefront around 7.15 a.m., they were spotted by a milkman named Henry Jennings and his 11-year-old helper, Edward Russell. The brothers tried walking away, but Jennings whistled at them. Alfred turned to face the milkman, ready for another fight. However, the milkman only wanted to tell them that they left their front door open. Alfred shut the door and they went on their way. The store assistant discovered the bodies shortly after. Several neighborhood people reported seeing the known scoundrel Alfred Stratton heading away from the crime scene. Police then deduced that the milkman and his young helper actually saw and spoke with the killers as they were leaving the paint store. Police quickly arrested Alfred and his brother, but when they lined the Strattons up with other men, the milkman and his helper didn't recognize the siblings as the suspects leaving the store. Alfred was going to be free again very soon. But he had one thing going against him, his own thumb. Melville McNaughton of Scotland Yard's Criminal Investigation Department discovered one unlikely piece of evidence in the Pharaoh residence, a greasy thumbprint on the inside of the cash box. McNaughton wrapped the box in paper and shipped it to his colleague, Detective Inspector Charles Collins. Collins was the head of the new and untested fingerprinting department. He deduced the greasy smudge came from perspiration. Since it didn't match the pharaoh's prints, it could belong to one of the killers. 
He compared it against his inventory of cataloged home invaders, but nothing matched. But then Collins heard about the police's prime suspects, the Strattons. Collins compared the greasy smudge against their prints taken after their arrest. One matched Alfred's right thumb. Collins was certain of his conclusion. He could use the Farrow case to prove the effectiveness of fingerprinting as a forensic tool. All Collins had to do was convince a jury how fingertips could convict a murderer. However, Alfred wasn't going to let his greasy thumbprint put him away in court. His attorney invited Dr. Henry Falds to testify. Falds was the first British person to adopt fingerprinting technology as police forensics. He was also Inspector Collins's mentor. Falds believed that police needed all 10 fingerprints to prove the forensics. He didn't want the credibility of fingerprinting to fall apart on this one case, nor put innocent men in jail. Dr. John Garson took the stand next. He claimed to be another mentor of Collins and used the same forensic analysis that Collins used to disprove that Alfred left the print. If the jury believed in Garson and Fald's expertise, Alfred was home free. Faced off against his mentors, Collins needed to prove his knowledge and communicate the science of fingerprinting in layperson's terms. Most importantly, he needed to prove this was Alfred's thumbprint. Collins passed the test with flying colors. He displayed enlarged photographs of the crime scene print, explaining how all fingerprints have a unique landscape of arches, whorls, and loops. He compared the print against other people, and then Alfred. Even Alfred was impressed. As to the defense's stellar witness, Dr. Garson, Collins's attorney produced two letters. Garson had offered his services to both the defense and the prosecution. This revelation made it seem like he cared less about justice and more about who would cut him a check. The judge found Garson untrustworthy and the jury found the Strattons guilty of murder. The verdict allowed forensics to become the new crime-fighting standard around the globe. And on May 23, 1905, Alfred and Albert hanged. Up next, we'll discuss the history of fingerprinting and attempts to beat it. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. On May 5, 1905, Scotland Yard brought the Stratton brothers to trial. This was the first trial in UK history to use fingerprinting forensics in a murder case. And now my guest Carter will walk us through the historical context surrounding the case. Thank you, Vanessa. Fingerprints have fully taken shape in the womb by the time we're about six months old and remain unchanged for the rest of our lives. 
The patterns in a thumbprint are labeled as arches, whorls, loops, and composites of those shapes. Several people experimented with the uniqueness of fingerprints in the 1800s, but no one connected them with crime forensics until 1880. That year, Scottish physician Henry Falls discovered that certain powders revealed invisible fingerprints, called latent prints. There were also visible prints and plastic prints, meaning prints seen with the naked eye and prints left in soft surfaces, respectively. After the conviction of the Stratton brothers in 1905, police began adopting this new science. The quickest was the United States, spearheaded by J. Edgar Hoover and his fledgling FBI office. But just as law enforcement began using this technology, criminals sought ways to outsmart it. In the 1930s, bank robber John Dillinger was as recognizable as any movie star. People saw him as a mythic hero of the Depression era a man unbothered by the law as he stole from the villainous banks. But Dillinger's own popularity worked against him. If he wanted to keep ahead of Hoover's FBI agents, he needed to change his face. After days of primitive, painful plastic surgery, Dillinger was disappointed that he still looked like himself. So his physician offered a better operation, obliterating his fingerprints. Dillinger agreed, knowing that other contemporary gangsters were experimenting with erasing their prints. Alvin Karpis hired a man to hack at his fingertips until he couldn't take the pain anymore. Theodore Handsome Jack Clutus filed away at his ridges until they were bloody and raw. Dillinger chose acid to erase his fingerprints on a grueling day in June of 1934. The agony was for nothing, because one month later, FBI agents gunned Dillinger down in front of Chicago's Biograph Theater on July 22nd. That same year, an FBI commission reported on this criminal trend of removing one's own fingerprints. According to physicians and dermatologists, the only effective way to disguise one's fingertips was through skin grafts. Bank robber Robert Phillips did just that in 1941. He paid a New Jersey doctor to connect his fingertips to his chest, allowing his fingertips to smooth out over several uncomfortable weeks. Phillips joined Dillinger, Carpus, and others attempting to scar themselves to conceal their prints, only to be disappointed. The outer ridges of their fingertips still matched with old records. Also, the new scarred prints created a fresh pattern for police to connect the dots. And when fingertips healed, they reformed the same patterns from before the mutilations. In trying to beat the system, these celebrity gangsters only proved the effectiveness of fingerprinting forensics. Today, Even with advanced technology like facial recognition software, the most reliable forensics are DNA and fingerprinting. No matter where you are, you are no farther from the law than you are from your fingertips.
Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Carter, thanks again for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Daniel William Gonzalez, with writing assistance by Alex Benedon and fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. Today in True Crime stars Carter Roy and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>